morning. I greet you this morning in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all lawlessness and purify unto himself a peculiar people, a special people for his own, zealous of good works. What a wonderful Savior we have. It's good to see so many familiar faces. I'm glad I'm a part of the family of God. And uh, what a turnout we have today. That's wonderful. I want to thank all the believers at Salem Bible Church, Pastor Delaney and all his helpers, for making this conference possible. And the choir was fantastic. We have a session on music later today. You have just demonstrated to us what good, godly music is. Thank you so much. Well, we have a lot to cover. We're going to get right into it. Our topic is dispensationalism. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this gathering of your people. May our hearts be encouraged in you and in your word. Open our eyes. Help us to understand some of the trends of our day. Help us to stand where we should stand on your firm, solid foundation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I don't know how many of you would consider yourselves to be dispensationalists. I'm sure many of you would, because I know many of you. But if you do embrace this label, then this is what is being said about you and about your belief system. The Puritan Board, a Reformed Presbyterian group, stated dispensation, dispensationalism was a horrid system led by Darby and Larkin. It cut up the Bible, had people being saved in different manners. A.W. Pink said there's a need to expose the modern and pernicious error of dispensationalism. This is a device of the enemy. It's sad to see how successful the devil has been by means of this subtle innovation. R.C. Sproul of Ligonier Ministries said, The dispensational system of theology is inherently and inescapably antinomian. Now, that's a term that means against the law, promoting an ungodly and wicked lifestyle. He goes on, the dispensational system should be discarded as being a serious deviation from biblical Christianity. In another place, he accused dispensationalist Charles Ryrie of teaching another gospel and being under the anathema, under the curse of God. John Gerstner, reformed theologian in his book, Wrongly Dividing the Word of Truth, describes dispensationalism as being Arminianism, Gnosticism, Pantheism, Pelagianism, and preeminently as Antinomianism. He further claims that dispensationalism is a cult and not a branch of the Christian church. Dispensationalists are heretics and false teachers who have twisted the gospel, are void of the gospel, and deny the gospel. Gary North, 
of post-tribulationists, he said, I decided in 1984 that I would like to be known in church history as the man who financed the intellectual demise of dispensationalism in its time of greatest crisis. Now, how alarmed should we be by Gary Norris' prediction? Oh, you remember the Y2K crisis? Remember it was 1999, we're about to go into a, a new year, the year 2000, and there were all these predictions about what would happen with the computers and everything? Well, here was Gary Norris' prediction. The Y2K crisis is systematic. It cannot possibly be fixed. I think it will wipe out every national government in the West. Not just modify them, destroy them. I honestly think the federal government will go under. So Gary North was not a very good prophet, but he wanted to finance the demise of dispensationalism. Dr. Perkiser of Pasadena Bible Institute said, Dispensationalism is one of the most ingenious systems of interpretation ever devised to evade the plain statements of God's holy word. Professor Packer of Bristol College calls dispensationalism a monstrosity. Gary DeMar described our understanding of prophecy as last day's madness. And he wrote a vicious attack against dispensationalists by that title. My friends, there's a theological term which describes this irrational and over-the-top anger and hatred which is being vented toward dispensationalism. It is called dispensational derangement syndrome. And it's amazing the animus and the deep-seated hostility that some non-dispensationalists have toward Bible-believing dispensationalists. It's very important that we respect our brothers in Christ, even though we may strongly disagree with some of their theological viewpoints and positions. We need to represent their positions accurately and fairly. We don't want to bear false witness against brethren with whom we may disagree. And I certainly don't appreciate it when dispensationalists are misrepresented. For example, we've already heard it in the quotes. You people teach two different ways of salvation. I've been a dispensationalist many, many years. I've never heard ever any dispensationalist teach such a thing. We're saved by grace through faith. And uh, Dr. Charles Ryrie fully answered that false charge in his book on dispensationalism many years ago, but uh, we keep hearing that charge nonetheless. The other thing, another example of a false charge is uh, over and over again, you'll hear them talking about how we teach a secret rapture. I've never heard any dispensationalist talk about a secret rapture. They talk about it, but we don't. Now, it's true, it's a mystery, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. 
And he said, Behold, I show you a mystery. Now, if he's showing it to us and revealing it to us and making it known to us, guess what? It's not a secret. So we need to be fair in accurately representing the positions of those who hold differing, differing views and not set up straw men. Now, by the way, I have a lot of quotations and so forth in these two presentations. At the end of my presentations, you will receive, a set, if you like, a set of these sermon notes where you can have all these quotations and outlines and everything. So don't worry about trying to scribble notes real fast. It'll be here for you. Let's think about the origins of dispensationalism. Dispensationalism is a back-to-the-Bible movement of the 19th century. Most trace its roots to John Darby, who has been called the father of dispensationalism, even though there were elements of dispensational truth long before Darby. John Darby visited the United States and preached to eager audiences in the largest churches of North America, even though his uh, greatest ministry was in Ireland and uh, on the other continent. He had a wonderful influence, but we don't want to forget about the other early brethren teachers, such as William Kelly, C.H. McIntosh, Edward Dennett, J.G. Uh, Bellett, F.G. Patterson, and F.W. Grant. And it's interesting, the brethren would always use initials. So C.H. McIntosh would always be C.H.M. And John Nelson Darby would always be J.N.D. They loved to uh, not draw attention to themselves, but just use their initials. What kind of man was John Darby? Well, Clarence Bass, who was a critic of dispensationalism, wrote the following about Darby who, as I said, is considered the pioneer and founder of dispensationalism. Here's his description, and this by a critic of dispensationalism. Simple in taste, benevolent in disposition, kind in temperament, considerate in his awareness of others, humble in spirit, sympathetic in nature. The single motivation of Darby's entire life was his love for Christ. If any principle is sufficient to explain the multiple facets of his personality, most probably it is this love. Because of it, he's been called a saint of the highest and purest stamp. He preferred being with the poor, for he was essentially humble in spirit. This characteristic endeared him to the folk of humble status and was perhaps one of the secrets of his success with the poor Romanists of Ireland and the peasants of France and Switzerland. He professed to require a New Testament precedent for every act of doctrine and never ceased to apply the scriptures to himself. All that he said was based on texts aptly quoted and logically enforced. Darby had a great heart filled with love for Christ and passionately determined to do all that was necessary to protect Christ's cause. Darby had a zeal for maintaining doctrinal purity with simple faith in the scriptures as the inspired word from whence came all guidance and instruction. He had a single approach, abstaining from the abstract 
philosophical argument. He simply opened the Bible and absorbed its message with little regard for extraneous study. One of his chief contributions to the theological literature is his translation of the Holy Scriptures, an entirely free and independent rendering of the whole original text using all known helps. That's quite a tribute to the founder of dispensationalism. Now, this Bible-centered movement started in Dublin early in the 19th century, and from Ireland it spread to England and from there to many other countries. These early brethren had a growing conviction that none of the established churches in Christendom truly represented a New Testament congregation as defined by the New Testament. Second, these men had a heightened and widespread anticipation that Christ would soon return. Other great dispensational Bible teachers of the 20th century would include Arno Gabeline, E. Schuyler English, Harry Ironside, C.I. Schofield, Merrill Unger, Lewis Ferry Schaefer, John Walford, Charles Ryrie, Alva McLean, John Whitcomb, and many others. One of the major criticisms of dispensationalism is that it's so new, less than 200 years old. And their argument is this, if it's new, then it cannot be true. And we need to answer this criticism carefully. There are several things to keep in mind. First, remember that the Reformation is a comparatively new movement, recent movement. It's only 501 years old. As, uh, last Wednesday, it was 500 years, 501 years old. When you think of the 2,000 years of church history, 500 years is not that ancient. Now, what did the Reformers do? They went back to the Bible and they recovered very basic truths regarding salvation, justification by faith, the authority of the scriptures, the universal priesthood of believers. They did not rediscover deep truths. They really rediscovered the very basics, the ABCs of salvation and the fact that the Bible is the book that we go by and not tradition of men. Now, that was 500 years ago. We would expect that other deeper truths would be uncovered in later centuries, and that's exactly what happened. The early Plymouth brethren were concerned about other truths, such as the nature of the church, principles for godly living, and they were learning about the believer's identification with Christ in his death and resurrection. They were also getting a much better grasp of prophetic truths. Keep in mind, the Reformers, in general, did not do very well with prophecy. Suppose you were to ask the average Reformer this question, who is the Antichrist? You know what Luther and many of his uh, companions would have told you? It's the Pope! Because in their minds... And in their environment, the Pope was the most anti-Christian person that they knew. 
they did not understand prophecy very well. Calvin wrote many commentaries on New Testament books, on almost every book of the New Testament, except for the prophetic book of Revelation. He didn't know how to handle that book. Luther never wrote a commentary on Revelation. In fact, he doubted whether it should be part of the sacred canon of Scripture. Here's his quote. Luther said, About this book of the Revelation of John, I leave everyone free to hold his own ideas and would bind no man to my opinion or judgment. I say what I feel. I hold this book to be neither apostolic nor prophetic. He didn't believe it to be a genuine book of prophecy, and he didn't think it belonged in the canon. So not only did Luther have a problem with the book of James, he had a problem with the book of Revelation. See, these men were just learning some of the basic things. The Reformers were not sound when it comes to prophetic truth. And they were not sound when it came to church truth. Keep in mind that they came out of the Roman Catholic Church, but not all of Roman Catholicism came out of them. They had weak views of the Lord's Supper and baptism. Many of them practiced infant baptism. They saw Christian baptism as a continuation of Jewish infant circumcision, which is what many Reformed men still believe today. Many of the errors of the Reformation are continued today. For example, the Reformers wrongly identified the Lord's Day as the Sabbath. And even today, people still refer to Sunday as the Sabbath. The Reformers did not understand the simplicity of New Testament worship. The Reformers uncovered wonderful, basic salvation truths. But there were many other Bible truths that still needed to be rediscovered and understood. So it's not surprising that in the centuries after the Reformation, there were godly, Bible-loving men who discovered wonderful truths regarding the church, the kingdom, prophecy, the second coming, Israel, the identification truths, positional truths, mystery truths, local church truths, and many, many other subjects. So we need to put to rest this notion that if a movement is new or recent, it must be erroneous. The reverse of that is certainly not true. If a movement is ancient, does that mean it's true to the Scriptures? Well, think of Roman Catholicism, whose roots can be traced back almost 1,700 years. And yet that religious system is full of errors. Baptismal regeneration was an error that crept into the church very, very early in church history. So to say that a movement, if a movement is ancient, it must be true, and if it's recent, it must, must, it must be false, is totally contrary to fact. There's only one thing that matters when evaluating any theological movement. Does it line up with God's word? And the only question that matters is, what saith the scriptures? Romans 4, verse 5. Now, if you still feel bad that dispensationalism did not begin until the 19th century, let me share something that might encourage you. 
Consider premillennialism, which is a vital tenet of dispensationalism and which is the anchor and foundation of our understanding of prophecy. Premillennialism says that Christ will return to this earth prior to the millennial kingdom, and when he comes, he will destroy his enemies and establish his kingdom on earth, just as predicted by all the Old Testament prophets. Now, it is recognized beyond much dispute that premillennialism was the prophetic position embraced by the early church in the first three centuries. Philip Schaff, the great church historian, who himself was not a dispensationalist and not a premillennialist, he wrote this, the most striking point in the eschatology of the anti-Nicene age, that's the first 300 years, is the prominent millennialism That is the belief of a visible reign of Christ in glory on earth with the risen saints for a thousand years before the general resurrection and judgment. It was indeed not the doctrine of the church embodied in any creed or form of devotion, but a widely current opinion of distinguished teachers such as Barnabas, Papias, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian, and others. Now, who on this earth today is in agreement with the premillennialism of the first three centuries? It would be the dispensationalists. Now, there are others who are not dispensational, but they're premillennial, like historic premillennialists. I've never met one myself, but George Ladd would be one of those. But the vast majority of premillennialists today are dispensational. I just received word two days ago that there's a new book, and it's entitled Ancient Dispensational Truth, Refuting the Myth that Dispensationalism is New. And the purpose of this new book is to examine numerous instances of dispensational doctrine that were clearly taught in some of the very oldest Christian writings on Bible prophecy that have survived to the present day, as well as in numerous other truly ancient Christian writings. This same author, James Morris, also wrote a book called Dispensationalism Before Darby, in which he points out dispensational truths that were taught in the 17th and 18th centuries before the time of Darby. That's his his other book. See, I don't have PowerPoint. I just hold up things. <laughs> now, has anyone said anything good about dispensationalism? Yes, they have. Now, George Ladd, I just mentioned him. Uh, he's not a dispensationalist. He's a historic premillennialist. He said, it is doubtful if there has been any other circle of men who have done more by their influence in preaching, teaching, and writing to promote a love for Bible study, a hunger for the deeper Christian life, a passion for evangelism, and zeal for missions in the history of American Christianity. That's quite a tribute. Daryl Bach, who's a progressive dispensationalist, not really a dispensationalist at all, as you'll 
see later. He said this about dispensationalism. It has contributed so mightily to evangelicalism in the 20th century, popularizing the prophetic message of the Bible, standing for the trustworthiness of God's word in an era in which criticizing the Bible had become commonplace within the church. Keith Matheson, in his strongly anti-dispensational book called Rightly Dividing the People of God, he says, The dispensationalists I know desire to believe only what the scriptures teach. Now, that's quite a compliment coming from someone that opposes dispensationalism. May our greatest flaw be that we only believe what the scriptures teach. Richard Mao is a Reformed theologian. He praised the old dispensationalists. That's us, not the newer, progressive kind. He made an amazing statement. He said this, by their fruits you shall know them. And I have benefited greatly from the spiritual fruits of dispensationalism. Throughout my youth, the majority of my spiritual mentors were dispensationalists. When I first began my personal devotional life, it was a Schofield Bible that I read on a daily basis. Dispensational charts hung on the walls at the Bible conference where I worked during my high school summers. At youth rallies and Bible clubs, from itinerant teachers and radio evangelists, including the founder of the seminary I now lead. In handbooks and magazines, I learned the importance of rightly dividing the word of truth. Later on, I was to hear many negative things said, especially by my Reformed colleagues about dispensationalism's heresies. But the criticism never quite rang true. Dispensationalists were supposed to downplay the relevance of the Old Testament for the Christian life. But some of the best preaching I have ever heard on the Psalms was from dispensationalists. Dispensational theology drew strict theoretical boundaries between Jesus as Israel's Messiah and Jesus as the Lord of the church. But the Jesus I learned about from dispensationalists was a heaven-sent Savior who showed a matchless love for both Jew and Gentile. The dispensationalist perspective undercut Christian social concerns. But long before I had ever heard of Mother Teresa, I saw dispensationalists lovingly embrace the homeless in rescue missions. Whatever the defects of the older dispensationalism, it embodied a spirituality that produced some of the most Christ-like human beings I've ever known. One hundred years ago, as dispensationalists anticipated the beginning of a new century, they were not optimistic. They expected wars and rumors of wars. They feared the coming of Antichrist. In contrast, mainline Protestant and liberal theologians expressed a deep faith in historical progress. They saw the kingdom of God expanding in its influence. The 20th century was to be the Christian century. War and poverty and famine would be virtually eliminated. Now I ask, who had a better sense of what was going to happen in the 20th century? It seems obvious that that Protestant liberalism was simply wrong in its predictions, whereas much of the dispensational scenario was vindicated. Why have we not given the dispensationalists more credit for their insights? Who was better equipped to prepare their children for the now much-heralded demise of enlightenment optimism? 
the dispensationalists or their cultured despisers? The answers seem to me to point clearly in the direction of vindication for the dispensationalist view of history. Because of those theological instincts, as well as their very real spiritual gifts, I raise up two cheers for the older dispensationalists. My friends, I'd like to share with you the fruits of dispensationalism. Jesus said, by their fruits ye shall know them. First of all, dispensationalism has fostered a genuine love for the Bible. The early dispensationalists were serious Bible students. John Darby, William Kelly, C.H. Uh, McIntosh, and so many more. Their writings are very valuable and a treasure indeed. One thing I found is that most modern dispensationalists, most of us today, are not well versed in the writings of the early brethren. They are not fully acquainted with their rich heritage. How many of you have ever read from the writings of C.H. McIntosh? A number of you have, not quite half of you have. He wrote notes on the first five books of the Bible and also has a volume of miscellaneous writings called the Macintosh Treasury. Macintosh lived 1820 to 1896. And I want to tell you how I first received his books. I was a brand new believer in Connecticut. My hometown was West Hartford. And one night, or yeah, one night I went to a church called the West Hartford Bible Church, a Christian Missionary Alliance Church. And uh, I enjoyed the service. There was an old, older couple, very dear couple that took an interest in me. They didn't, I was a visitor. They didn't know me. They invited me over to their home. They gave me a wonderful dessert. And then they said, we have a gift we'd like to give you. They gave me six volumes of Macintosh's miscellaneous writings. This is one of them. And six other volumes, which are green colored, of Macintosh's notes on Deuteronomy, um, notes on Genesis through Deuteronomy. My friends, one of the best gifts I have ever received. I often say to people, he's my favorite uninspired writer. <laughs> Daniel Webster Whittle. Do you, does that name ring a bell? He was an evangelist and Bible teacher of the 19th century. He was an associated with D.L. Moody's campaigns. He was also a songwriter who wrote 200 hymns, some of which you are very familiar with. I know whom I have believed. Have you any room for Jesus? Moment by moment, showers of blessings. The Banner of the Cross. This is what Daniel Whittle said about the writings of C.H. McIntosh, one of the early Brethren writers. Under God, they have blessed me more than any books outside of the Bible itself that I have ever read and have led me to a love of the Bible that is proving an unfailing source of profit. I have good news for you. On the book table, there are two Volumes of Macintosh's miscellaneous writings, one volume of his works on the Pentateuch. They're an excellent price. They're used, but an excellent price. You'll have to fight over them <laughs> during the break.
That's all I have is three. When we think about how dispensationalism has fostered a love for the Bible, we must not fail to mention the Schofield Bible and the amazing impact that it had. In 1930, the Schofield Reference Bible became the first book published by Oxford University Press to attain a sale of one million copies. And that was in a year of economic hardship, the Great Depression. This Bible was extremely popular. Schofield had a lawyer's mind and was able to instruct people in the great themes of Scripture with clarity and conciseness. Schofield was trained by James H. Brooks, one of the great fundamentalist leaders of that day. Brooks wrote over 200 tracts and booklets. He's the most prominent dispensationalist of his generation. Brooks was a key leader in the famous Niagara Bible Conference and largely responsible for the authorship of the Niagara Creed. R.A. Torrey described Brooks as a man who was mighty in the scriptures. One of the favorite themes of Brooks was the blessed hope and the coming of our Lord Jesus for his church. Schofield was a disciple of James Brooks. And Schofield uh, wrote that little booklet, Rightly Dividing the Word of Truth. There's copies on the back table. At the invitation of Dwight L. Moody, Schofield pastored the Moody Church in Northfield, Mass., where he served for seven years, right here in New England. And that is where he wrote his Schofield Bible Correspondence Course, which I'll say a word about later. He also had a good sense of humor. On the verse in Matthew 10:18, Jesus said, When they deliver you up, take no thought how or what you shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what you shall speak. Well, Schofield's note said, This instruction is to martyr." not to preachers. Preachers need to give a little thought to what they are going to say. Schofield had a gift of being able to make the message of the Bible simple, clear, and understandable to the common man. Now, no dispensationalist has been attacked as much as Schofield. One of his most severe critics was Joseph Canfield, who wrote the incredible Schofield in his book, in which he levels all kinds of charges against Schofield, including vicious attacks against dispensationalism. He accused Schofield of taking a false oath of office, of bribes, of fraud, of forgery, of failing to provide for his children, of lying about his military service, and on and on. It's quite a hatchet job. And the book has been thoroughly answered by evangelist Robert Sumner, editor of the Biblical Evangelist, and I have copies of that on the back table. He did an excellent job answering those charges. If you really want to know what kind of man Schofield was, why not ask someone who really knew him well? Lewis Ferry Schaefer, founder of Dallas Seminary and author of the best systematic theology that I know of, in my biased opinion, Anyway, this is what Schaefer said about his friend, C.I. Schofield. He was such a wonderful Christian. It may be my privilege sometime to take some chapel hour to speak on the personal relationship and my opinion of this man whom I think is the greatest Christian 
that I ever knew without any doubt. Marvelous Christian. So wonderfully balanced in all his thinking and all his teaching. I think he was the incomparable teacher of the past generation. There's no other one to compare with him. Not another one. God used Schofield to help thousands of believers to understand and to love God's word and to study it with delight. Now, many who have a Schofield Bible never use the chain reference system, which is one of its best features. You should try it. You can study any one of about 75 subjects or doctrines. For example, those doctrines starting with the letter R would include reconciliation, redemption, remnant, repentance, resurrection, rewards, and righteousness. And there's a page in the Schofield Bible which explains how to use the chain reference system. I'm always amazed at people with Schofield Bibles that have never used that feature. The second fruit of dispensationalism is that dispensationalism has fostered a love for prophetic truth. It has helped believers to understand things to come. It led to the great prophecy conferences of the last two centuries, such as the Niagara Conferences, the Northfield Conferences here in New England, the Winona Lake Bible Conferences in Indiana, the Keswick Conferences, and many others. Believers were encouraged to look for the coming of the Lord with eager anticipation. One old-timer described the Niagara Conference as follows. Those were the days of Brooks and West and Parsons and Erdman and Moorhead and Nicholson and Needham and Gordon. Oh, what discussions were held in those days. How the Lord Jesus was honored and exalted. How the Holy Spirit was honored. How the Bible was expounded. The bread of life was broken and distributed at the Niagara Bible Conferences. And that is feeding the children of God in this land to this day. A third fruit of dispensationalism. It has encouraged expository preaching. Expository preaching had fallen into disfavor in the 18th century. Most ministers preached topically or textually. That is, using one verse or text and then building a sermon around the theme of the verse. The Plymouth Brethren did not follow this method, but introduced a verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter consecutive exposition of the Scriptures. Church historian Dr. Norman Krauss describes how the Plymouth Brethren's expository preaching remarkably transformed evangelicalism of the late 1800s. He said this, The striking feature of their ministry was their simple exposition of Bible passages. They did not preach a series of sermons on different topics or hold a series of evangelistic meetings. Rather, they held Bible study meetings. The ministry of Malachi Taylor, who died in 1897, was succeeded for two years by A.C. Gabeline. And it's a good example of how these meetings work. For a period of about 12 years, he held a daily Bible study meeting in Temple Court in New York City. Darby himself gave a series of studies at Farwell Hall at D.L. Moody's invitation. It was this method, taken no doubt from the Brethren's example, that was expanded and used so effectively by James Brooks, 
and his associates in Bible conferences all over the country. End of quote. The efforts of these Brethren Expositors has had a significant impact on, L, on uh, Lewis Burry Schaefer, Harry Ironsides, the founders at Dallas Seminary, and also at Moody Bible Institute, influencing the expository preaching of a whole new generation. Another fruit of dispensationalism, it has been a soul-winning movement and a missionary-minded movement. It started with Darby, who preached the gospel on two continents. And we're all aware of the amazing influence of Dwight L. Moody. And by the way, here's what Moody said about Macintosh's writings. He said, some years ago, I had my attention called to CHM's notes and was so much pleased and at the same time profited by the way they open up the scripture truths that I secured at once all the writings of the same author. And if they could not be replaced, I would rather part with my entire library, accepting my Bible, than with these writings. They have been to me a very key to the Scriptures. Billy Sunday, also strongly influenced by dispensationalism, and his hometown became the location for the One Own Lake Bible Conferences. I graduated from seminary right in the Billy Sunday Tabernacle, a huge auditorium with a sawdust floor. And dispensationalism has been a missionary-minded movement. The Central American Mission, guess who founded it? C.I. Schofield. Now, I mentioned earlier John Gerstner, this Reformed uh, theologian who is totally opposed to dispensationalism. He wrote a book, Wrongly Dividing the Word of Truth, trying to make the case that dispensationalism teaches a false gospel. So I'm very interesting to read a statement at the beginning of one of his books where he said, quote, I owe my salvation under God to a dispensationalist. <laughs> it can't be too much of a false gospel if the sharing of it led to Gerstner's salvation. He's criticizing the very ones that led him to the Lord. Another fruit of dispensationalism, it's a movement that is known for its love for the Jewish people. In fact, one dispensational missionary group calls, himself, calls themselves very simply the Friends of Israel. We have a great love for the Jewish people. Salvation is of the Jews, and our Savior was a son of Abraham. God used the Jewish people to give us the Bible. Every author of sacred scripture, every human author, was Jewish with the exception of Luke. Thank God for what he gave us. Based on the Abrahamic covenant and other passages, we believe that Israel has divine rights to the land of Palestine. Because God's promised it to them. It was dispensationalists, now this is amazing, dispensationalists predicted that Israel would become a nation many, many, many decades before it ever happened. Because they simply believed what the prophets said. And they knew that at the end of the age there must be a nation Israel. We believe that God has a wonderful future for his people Israel 
And this will be fulfilled in the kingdom which God has promised by the mouth of all his prophets. If there is no future kingdom, as described by the prophets, which many non-dispensationalists believe, that there will be no future kingdom, and if the promises given to Israel are now given over to the church, what does this mean? Well, this would mean that God has broken his covenant with Abraham and his covenant with David and broken his new covenant. If you want to be a solid dispensationalist, then please study the biblical covenants. God is committed to keeping his covenant promises. He's a covenant-keeping God. This is why Charles Ryrie, in his book called The Basis of Premillennial Faith, devotes most of the book to the study of the biblical covenants, the Abrahamic, the Davidic, and the new. If you believe in a covenant-keeping God, I really think you have to be a dispensationalist. Well, in our next session, we're going to talk about why we should hold fast to dispensational theology, and we're going to talk about the sad decline of dispensationalists today. Thank you for your good attention. Let's bow in prayer. Thank you, our Heavenly Father, for these moments we could share. Thank you for the wonderful fruits of dispensationalism. Thank you for these dear men of God who took your words seriously. Men who trembled at the word of God. May we imitate them as they imitated Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.